And turn your Bibles now to the book of Luke chapter 7. That's where we've been studying in three previous studies, and we're going to finish that study from Luke 7 this morning. We've looked at three, four. We will, by the time we get through, have looked at four independent studies, yet they're all connected with Luke chapter 7. In the first study, we looked at verses 1 to 10, and we talked about the man who made Jesus marvel. This was the centurion who had a servant who needed to be healed, and the centurion sent someone to Jesus saying he was not worthy that he should even come under his roof and just say the word and he'd be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. And we talked about several practical things we learned from those verses. The next section of verses was 11 to 17. This is the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. And Jesus raised the young man and presented him to his mother. But the reaction of the people is what was fascinating. And that is, they said, God has visited his people. A prophet has risen up among us. And we learned several practical things from that section. Last week we talked about Luke chapter 7, 18 to 35, where Jesus talks about John. This is where John the, uh, John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus worked miracles and sent them back to John and said, tell John what you've seen and heard. And then he turns to the multitude and talks about John, the commendation of John. And so we talked about lessons that we learned from Jesus talks about John. Let's look beginning at verse 36 this morning through verse 50, and we're going to focus on Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinner. Three characters that are found, and watch for those three characters in the reading of verses 36 to 50. We see Jesus, obviously, he's all through the chapter. We see a man who is a Pharisee, his name is Simon, and then we're going to see a woman who is considered a sinner, an outcast by society. Watch for the interaction of those three characters. Let's begin reading at verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who or what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water to walk for my feet. But she has washed my feet with the tears of her, with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven, for she's loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat at the table began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's talk this morning about Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinner. Those three characters that we just read about here in this context. Now let's say some things about this context. First of all, this is a story, as you just saw in the reading of that, of a sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus and the reaction of the host and the reaction of Jesus. Now let's outline what we just saw here in Luke chapter 7. And if you were following on the screen and don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to get a Bible. Open to Luke chapter 7. And let's analyze what we just saw in Luke chapter 7. Here is an outline of those few verses, verses 36 to to 50. Let's retell the story and get the details. Verses 36 to 50, here's what happens. We have Jesus' feet being washed and anointed by a sinful woman. We'll say more about what her sin may or may not be in a moment. But let's begin at verse 36. What happens is there was a Pharisee who had invited Jesus because Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He'd invited Jesus along with other guests into his home. And as Jesus is dining in the home of this Pharisee, this woman who was a sinner heard about Jesus being there and she rushed to Jesus and she begins to uh, cry and weep before him and she takes the tears that she is weeping with and she washes his feet and takes her hair and, and dries his feet and washes his feet and then she anoints his feet and she kisses his feet. And she's doing all of that while Jesus is dining at the Pharisee's house. Now the Pharisee, though, when he saw that, he had disdain for Jesus and he looked at Jesus and he thought within himself, and Jesus knew his thoughts, that if this man were a prophet like he claims to be, then he would know this was a sinner. He'd know the kind of woman this was. Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said, said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Go ahead and say it. What is it? All right, that moves us to the next section. Here is the parable of two debtors. Let us get the details of the parable. He said there was a creditor who had two debtors. One of them owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was a day's wage. 500 denarii would be two two years' salary. The 50 denarii would be about two and a half months. And so based on your income, think about what you would make in two years versus what you make in two and a half months. And one of them owes this amount and the other owes the other amount. Now get the point of the parable and we'll mention this again a little bit later. When Jesus says to him, he said he forgave both of them. Which of them is the one, notice the question that he asked, would love him more? The point of the parable is not the amount of sin that Jesus may forgive. Though that is mentioned later in the context, she has had much sin. That's not the point of the parable. But as Wearsby observes, it is the awareness of sin in the heart of the person. Which of them is more aware of their forgiveness? Which one of them would appreciate it more, the one that is forgiven the most or the one that's forgiven less? Even though it may be a lot, it's a lot less than this one was forgiven. And Simon said, well, I suppose the one that he forgave the most. Then now, the third thing that happens here is Jesus' contrast makes three contrasts between the Pharisee and the sinful woman. 
He points out to the Pharisee, here's what you failed to do, and here's what this woman did that she wasn't required to do. In fact, she went much further than you should have gone. What were the three contrasts? Let's begin at verse 44. He said, when I came in, you gave me no water to wash my feet. More about that custom in a moment. But she, she didn't just give me water. She took the tears from her eyes and she began to wash my feet with the tears from her eyes. She went further than what was expected of you. Here's a second contrast. Look at verse 45. When I came in, you didn't greet me with a kiss. She went further than that. She not only would greet me with a kiss, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. Third contrast. Look at verse 46. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she went further than that. She anointed my feet with very fragrant oil. What a contrast, Simon, between what you failed to do and what this woman was willing to do. And then the third, fourth section is Jesus forgives the woman. Jesus turns to Simon and he says, this Pharisee, he said, I, I want you to look at this woman. This woman, which has very many sins, they're forgiven because she loved much. But those that he mentions later in the context, he says that she has loved much. But notice the one who's, uh, who loves little is the one who is forgiven very little. And then he turns to the woman and said, your sins are forgiven. Depart in peace. Now that's the story. Now let's talk a little about how this is not the same as the anointing. As we read that, you may be thinking, I remember there's more to this story than this because there is the anointing at Bethany, and this must be the same thing. There's the anointing at Bethany mentioned in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. And this is not the same. This is not the same Simon. This is not the same woman. Let's talk about that just for a moment. Not the same Simon because in Luke's account, which we're studying, this is Simon the Pharisee. Where in Matthew and Mark, he's identified as Simon the leper, not the same Simon. Simon was a very common name in Palestine. There are nine that are mentioned in the New Testament. Josephus mentions 20. Some have suggested perhaps there are thousands in Palestine, or were thousands in Palestine. And so because one is named Simon, the other is named Simon, doesn't mean, mean they're the same man. In fact, they seem to be identified as separate men. This is not the same woman that was anointing the feet of Jesus. In Luke, she is identified as a sinful woman, but in Matthew and Mark, and particularly John is the one who identifies this, that woman was Mary, who was a sister to Lazarus, and she was a very godly woman and not identified as an outcast of society. So that's not the same story. Luke 7 seems to be an independent story separate from these other accounts of the anointing that took place at Bethany. Let's talk about some of the customs of the day that would enhance our understanding of what took place in this context in Luke chapter 7. Here's one of the, the uh, customs of the day. When a rabbi sat at a meal, many who may be uninvited were allowed to come. For example, this Pharisee has. Jesus, he had invited him. He had asked him to come. But what in the world is this sinful woman coming in? Because he has disdain for her. He has no use for her. Why would he allow her to come in? Because that was the custom of the day. You have a guest into your home, particularly a rabbi, a teacher of the law, and others could just freely come in and join in and listen to that rabbi as he begins to teach. Furthermore, the host would greet the, the guest with a kiss, a form of greeting, would have their feet washed, a necessity, not just a formality, and then anoint their head with oil. And that's why Jesus mentions those three things you failed to do. 
More about that in a moment. Here's something else about the customs. In the east, a guest would recline on low couches, most of the time on their left elbow with their feet put behind them. See, in our western setting, you talk about sitting at a table, you have your feet under the table, and how can someone be behind you and kissing your feet and wiping your feet? Jesus is reclining on a low couch with his feet behind him, and that's how the woman could be standing behind him and washing his feet while Jesus is still dining at the table. Furthermore, while all are sinners, some are labeled sinners as a class, an outcast of society. And if you ask this Pharisee, if we could go back in time and hit rewind and go back and when interview this Pharisee and ask him, are all men sinners? And he would say, oh yeah, all men are sinners. And many of these other guests, but she's a special class of sinner. Just as a class, she's part of the outcast of society. And that's how she's being viewed by this Pharisee. So let's talk about Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinner. Here's the first thing we learned from this story. I'll learn a lesson about recognizing one's need. I'll learn a very practical thing about recognizing one's need. You see, this woman recognized that she is in sin and she had a need for the Lord. In fact, she seems to be conscious of nothing else. Evidence of that? Well, she comes to Jesus when she heard the text says, if you go back to Luke 7, if you've left there, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table, here she comes running. She came to Jesus. She didn't just happen to be a guest there and Jesus came in and, okay, I'll tolerate him. She was looking for Jesus. She seems to be conscious of nothing else. The very fact that she's weeping at the feet of Jesus suggests she's weeping about something that she's done. And she knows she's at the feet of the one who can help her with that. Furthermore, I want to suggest to you that she is considered as an outcast. In fact, she was called that by this Pharisee. She had to know that I'm considered the low class of society, that I'm as a group, and I'm put in that group of a bunch of sinners. That's how I'm viewed. Yes, I have needs. But perhaps more important than all of that, notice she receives forgiveness. Now let me contrast that and we'll come back. Let's contrast that to John 8. You remember when the Jews were told by Jesus, you shall uh, know the truth and the truth shall make you free? Remember their reaction? We've never been in bondage to any man. How sayest thou she be made free? In other words, we don't need any of that freedom. We're, we've never been in bondage. You want to talk about our sin? We're not in sin. They would not embrace forgiveness. But when Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven you, go in peace, she embraces that forgiveness. She recognizes, I have a need. Now let's contrast that to the Pharisee. The Pharisee doesn't seem to recognize his need. It seems to never cross his mind. He never looks at Jesus and recognizes, you know what, you're a rabbi and I need some help with my sin. In fact, when he thinks about sin, look at verse 39. He thinks about the woman's sin. Look at verse 39 now. He said, when the Pharisee saw, <clears throat> who had invited him saw this, he spoke within himself. And this is what he's thinking. He's thinking when he, within himself. This man, if he were a prophet, would know what manner of woman this is who is touching. For she is a sinner. Jesus doesn't know he's around the sinners. Apparently, he doesn't know this woman, how low she is. And Jesus knows that, but he also know how, knows how low the Pharisee is. 
Could you be that way? Is it that sometimes when we think about sin and a need, we can always think of someone else who has that need and we don't make application to ourselves? That seemed to be the case with the Pharisee. Let's go to verses 42 and 43 of our context. One who realizes how low their spiritual condition is will be the most appreciative of forgiveness. Go back to verse 42 and 43. Remember the parable? And when he had nothing to pay, verse 42 said, neither one of these, the one who owed 500 and the one who owed 50 denarii, he freely forgave them both. Tell me which of them would love him more. And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he, that for, he forgave more. I want to go back and emphasize the point of that parable. I quote Wiersbe as he said, the parable does not deal with the amount of sin in a person's life, but the awareness of that sin in his heart. In other words, it is the person who recognizes, here's how low I went, here's how low I've gone, here's my lost condition, is the one that recognizes and appreciates so much the forgiveness that he embraces. The one who turns to God is one who realizes how low he's gone and how great the release is. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> In other words, forgiveness is not one of those things, before we turn to, to look at Romans 7. Forgiveness is not one of those things that when, you when the person comes to recognize, you know what, I guess I have sin and I need forgiveness. I, I, I guess I'll take some of that. But he's one who recognizes, here's the terrible condition I'm in and I am in great need of forgiveness. Here's the picture of Romans 7. Paul talks about his own life before he became a Christian. And notice at verse 24, he said, O wretched man that I am. I'm not just, I'm not just done so wrong. I'm a wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I need deliverance. I stand in need of deliverance. I'm in a wretched condition before God. Paul himself considered himself as the worst of sinners. He said that God was merciful to him who was the chiefest of sinners. Nobody was any worse than I was. I was the lowest of the low and I needed forgiveness. I want to suggest to you that apathy reigns in those who ignore their real need. That is, they may obey the gospel, and I put that in quotations, but they don't really appreciate the forgiveness they've received if they received it at all. And let, until they first of all recognize how low they went in recognizing their condition. Here's the second thing I learned. In this context, I'm learning a lesson about the relation of real need that we just talked about and love. Jesus connected those two together. A relation between a real need and love. <clears throat> now let's consider this woman. Look at verse 38 and then verse 47. This woman, this sinner, because she sees her own need, shows love and compassion to the Lord. Look now at Luke 7 and in verse 38. That she stood behind him weeping and she began to wash his feet with the tears and wipe them with the hairs of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed him with fragrant oil. She's showing love because she recognizes her need. Look at verse 47. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven because she loved much. See, what verse 47 is telling me is that Jesus is interpreting the actions of verse 38 as love that she had. Well, why do you think, Jesus, that she showed love? He said it's because she recognizes how much sin she has. There is a connection between the two. The Pharisee doesn't see his need. And consequently, because of that, he doesn't show much love toward Jesus. Nor does he show much love toward the woman. 
He didn't have much use for either one of them. You see, realizing your own need and the depth from which you've been lifted stirs love and care for others. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking at the very beginning of his sermon. This is a sermon about the kingdom of God, what it's like to be in the kingdom. And he starts on the note of the kind of people that make up the kingdom. What kind of people are in the kingdom of God? Well, here's, here we go. Look at chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. What we call the Beatitudes, it's those who are poor in spirit. In other words, the ones who enter into the kingdom are those who come to recognize their spiritual poverty before God. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I've got a lot to offer. I think I'll join the kingdom of God because God could use me. You never, you'll never enter the kingdom. The one who enters the kingdom, he recognizes, you know what? Spiritually, I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer to God. I need forgiveness. And that's the person who shows love and care for other people. Let's go to 1 John. It's interesting that 1 John talks so much about love for our brother. Our concern for our brother. Our care for our brother. And notice what he says. We're motivated by the love that God has shown toward us. Look at 1 John 3 and in verse 16. By this we know love. You want to understand love? This is it. Get the picture. Because he laid down his life for us, therefore we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. All right, that's simple enough. Look at chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> in this the love of God has been manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Here's the love God has manifested. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. There's the greatest example of love. To be a perpetuation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. See, we're motivated to love one another. So there is a relationship between real needs and love. Here's the third thing I learned. How Jesus was treated. First of all, he was invited as a guest to the Pharisees' home. But what I want you to notice is he was not treated with the common courtesies that were to be shown to any guest. Let's go back beginning at verse 44 through verse 46. Now remember the things we mentioned to the customs of the day. You invite a guest into your home, you provide water for the washing of their feet because of the dusty roads and the sandals which they wore. You would anoint their head with oil and you would greet them with a kiss, a form of greeting as we might a handshake or a hello. Jesus was not treated with that. You see, these would be the, the basic kindness and decency to be shown. If I invited you into my home and you come to my home and I don't even speak as I open the door. And you stick out your hand to shake hands and I refuse to shake hands. And you wave and say hi and I refuse to say hi. And you take your coat off and I'll just leave it, let you hold it because I'm not even going to offer to take it and put it away for you. You say, well, you know, he's not even offering the, the common decency that you do to a guest. Well, that's how Simon was treating him here. You see, this you would do for any stranger. Any stranger come in, you might wash their feet or have their feet washed at least. You would anoint them, greet them with a kiss. None of that was done toward Jesus, even though he was an invited guest. You see, the way Simon was treating Jesus was one of rudeness toward Jesus. And he's thinking about things that are with disdain as he looks at Jesus saying if he knew he, she was a sinner, he wouldn't be having anything to do with her. He's not a prophet like he claims to be. 
And so he mistreated Jesus. And yet the sinful woman was not only courteous, but she went far beyond that. Go back to verse 44 to 46. Remember the three things that he pointed out? He said, you didn't wash my feet, but she washed it with tears. You didn't anoint my head, she anointed my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss, she's kissed my feet. She not only was courteous, she went far beyond being courteous. Here's something I'm learning from that, some very practical conclusion. Number one is that when you are mistreated, and you will be at some point, or you're overlooked, or you're ignored, just remember the Lord was treated that same way too. Sometimes when we're overlooked and, and we were left out of something, or someone mistreats you and doesn't treat you with common decency that they do other people, we get all bent out of shape, maybe properly so. How we've been mistreated, you just remember they mistreated our Lord too. He was treated that way. He went in as a guest, an invited guest, and he was mistreated. Here's the second thing I learned from that. Those who treat you the worst sometimes are those that claim to be righteous. And most often they're self-righteous. Jesus was not mistreated by the outcast, the sinful woman. He was mistreated by Pharisees. Now, we know what Pharisees were like because we've read the text and understand the teaching about the Pharisees, but the Pharisees viewed themselves as quite religious, in fact, more religious than anyone else and more righteous than anyone else. And you pick any Jew off the street and bring them in and say, okay, we've got this sinful woman, we've got this man who claims to, to be Jesus, the Messiah, and then we've got this Pharisee, which is the most righteous? He'd probably identify that Pharisee as being the most righteous person. And what I'm learning here is sometimes those who mistreat you the worst or will treat you the worst, sometimes are those who claim to be more righteous than anyone else will treat you worse perhaps than the worst of sinners. Here's another lesson I'm learning. That when we do not show common courtesies, we're lacking in love. And that's what Jesus said. He said, she loved much. It implies that Simon didn't love at all. Here's something else I'm learning. Is that we just need to practice Learn how to make application of the golden rule. That's what we're looking at here in Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 7. That one was practicing basically the principle of the golden rule of treating others the way they would want to be treated. And Simon obviously did not. Here's something else I learned. A very powerful lesson from Luke chapter 7. I learned a lesson about a respectable sinner. And I put respectable in quotation. If one's a sinner, they're not really respectable. But both the Pharisee and the woman were sinners. There's no doubt about that. Now, not in the mind of the Pharisee, but in the mind of the reader of the text. She openly sinned somehow. I don't know what it was. She's condemned by the public. Some speculate, and there is conjecture, so there's no evidence we can cite from the text, that perhaps she was a harlot, and that's why she was considered this outcast or a sinner. And so I can't prove that. Maybe she was. But let's just take that for illustration. Let's just assume she was a harlot. If she was a harlot when she wasn't, she wouldn't be considered any worse than she's being considered now. So let's consider her as a harlot. She's a sinner. She openly sinned. But the Pharisees, what I want us to focus on, he was respectable because he was not condemned by all. Not even an outcast. In other words, see, he's not considered as that outcast of society. He's a respectable person in society. But I want to tell you, he was just as much or more a sinner than she was. 
What did he do? He mistreated Jesus. He was self-righteous. He looks at her sin, but he doesn't think about his own. He thinks Jesus must be a liar because if he were a prophet like he claims, he's implying, I don't think he's a prophet. And he rejects Jesus completely. He was just as much or more of a sinner than she was, but he was, quote, respectable. He was not aware of how awful and sinful he really was. When he thinks about sin, verse 39, he thinks of the woman. He doesn't think about himself. I want to tell you, there's something very practical in that. That there's a lot of respectable sinners among us today. And by among us, I mean in the world and sometimes in the church. Now let's compare the respectable sinner to someone who is a drunkard, uh, perhaps a harlot, or maybe a drug dealer. Now if you've met someone who is this drug dealer or this person that was a harlot or this person that was a drunkard, you'd say, oh, they're sinners, terrible. They're not respectable at all. But I want to tell you about some respectable sinners. That's good people who might be religiously wrong. That's a respectable sinner. Here are the religious people. They're decent. They're honest people. They, uh, they're not drunkards. They're not harlots. They're not thieves. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They're religious, but they're wrong. They're going to lose their soul. Verse 22 and 23, same context. Jesus makes the point that there would be some that he would say in the day of judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. You see, we were respectable. We not only were moral, we were religious. That's a respectable sinner. Here's another respectable sinner. The Christian with the holier-than-thou attitude. Maybe like the Pharisee who considers themselves as superior to others. I'm more righteous than the rest of you. I'm more religious than the rest of you. I'm holier than the rest of you. I live better than the rest of you. And if you don't believe me, just ask me, and then we'll, we'll talk about how much better I am than you. That's that holier-than-thou attitude. That's a respectable sinner. Here's another, one who opposes any part of God's plan. It may be God's plan on marriage. It might be on divorce and remarriage, they oppose. But it may just be God's plan on how you live as husband and wife. They reject that and don't live by that. But they're not the harlot. They're not the drunkard. But I want to tell you, they're respectable sinners. Or maybe they reject God's plan for the eldership or reject God's plan for modesty or dancing and on down the line we go. And they live contrary to the will of God, but they are respectable people otherwise. That's a respectable sinner. Here's another class. The weak Christian who doesn't grow, Hebrews chapter 5. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone teach you again. They didn't grow. They didn't develop as they should have. That's a respectable sin. Wait, not a harlot. Not a drunkard. Not a thief. They just didn't grow like they should have. Or like in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, one who sows discord. Wouldn't think of committing adultery. Wouldn't think of stealing wouldn't think of bowing down before an idol, respectable person in society, but there may be one who sows discord within a local church. That's a respectable sinner. Maybe it's one who has an inactive faith, James chapter 2, who has faith all right, but their faith doesn't do what it says it ought to be doing. That's a respectable sinner. 
Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 10. There is a respectable form of worldliness. You say, what? how in the world could something be worldly and at the same time be respectable? Well, let's talk about some uh, disrespectable or unrespectable, whatever word you want to use, worldliness. For example, if one, they drink, they curse, uh, they, they run around half naked, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They steal. Those are forms of worldliness that are not respectable at all, at least among godly. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 4 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Let's talk about Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, the text said. This is Paul writing. What did he say? Having loved the present world. Now it may be that Demas left him to go after some ungodly action. Maybe to go become a drunkard. There's no evidence of that. Maybe to go steal. There's no evidence of that. All the evidence points to is that he had a love and a concern greater for this life than he did for the spiritual concerns. That's respectable worldliness. Where maybe I'm not, I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't think of committing adultery. But sometimes my, my interest in living in this life and taking care of things that are good and right within themselves exceeds and outweighs my spiritual interest. That's a respectable form of worldliness. Here's another lesson I learned from Luke chapter 7. The worst of sinners can be forgiven. Now that ought to be a thing that's clearly understood from just a, a, a smattering knowledge of the scriptures. Just the casual reader could, could skip every other chapter, skip two or three chapters and just skip and pick through the Bible and they ought to get the picture somewhere that the worst of sinners can be forgiven. But quite often in a home Bible study I've come across people who think, you know what, <clears throat> you don't know all that I've done, how bad I've been, and I'm not sure God would forgive me of all that I've done. And here's something I'm learning from this context. The worst of sinners can be forgiven. You see, this woman had many sins. Let's go back to our text in Luke chapter 7. Look at Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 47. I say to you, her sins, which are many. She didn't deny that. There's nothing in the context where she said, no, wait a minute. Don't libel, label me with a bunch of sins. I may have done some, but not many. She didn't. She embraced the forgiveness. This woman had many sins, and yet she was forgiven. And I want you to understand that God is willing to forgive all of our sins. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. This is talking about the erring child of God, by the way. That the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sins. No matter what it is. All sin. And so now that I'm a child of God, I've committed this sin again. I've gone back into the world. I've, I've done things contrary. In fact, I've done things worse maybe than I did before. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sins. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, which is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. The promise is that under the new covenant, God would remember our sins and, against, uh, sins and iniquities against us no more. You know what that means? It doesn't matter what sin it was, how big it was, how many there were. God said, I'll take those sins and I'll just wipe them away and I'll turn loose and let them go. That's what forgiveness involves. And I won't remember those against you anymore. You see, that includes the worst of sins. For example, that includes murder. So how do you know it includes that? Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, God had forgiven him. That's not the exact word. Who I, I am the chiefest of sinners, he said. He'd been guilty of murder. 
That would include adultery. The Corinthians had been adulterers. Their sin had also involved homosexuality. That includes homosexuality. It includes the worst of sins. Find me someone that you say, they are, they're such a terrible sinner, God couldn't forgive them, but you say it's worse now than, than, than murder and adultery and homosexuality. It's worse than any of that, but they've done so bad. And God would never, ever forgive. Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's a heavy burden. Heavy burden. In other words, he doesn't say, come to me if you have a few sins and I'll forgive you. But no matter how many sins you have, I'm willing to forgive. I'm learning a very practical thing. The worst of sinners can be forgiven. Here's something else I'm learning from this context. And that is the courage of those who love God. The courage of those who love God. It took courage for this woman to profess her faith and her love in the house of Simon the Pharisee. You see, Simon the Pharisee hated her. It's obvious from verse 38, 39. And for her to be in the house of someone who would look at her with disdain and hate her, and she declares her love for the Lord and the courage that it took to do that, and her faith in the Lord, it took a great deal of courage. She could have been scorned and even expelled. She could have been kicked out of the house because of that. She was so courageous, she did the honors of the house. Now you think about that. You're one who is disdained by the guest, and you go into their house anyway, and what they should have been doing, you're doing. You see, he should have washed the feet, and she's washing his feet. They should have greeted him with a kiss, she's kissing him. They should have anointed his head with oil, she's anointing his feet. Now we might not have those customs, but if you are the one who is hated and disdained by the, the owner of the house and you go in and you're taking their coats and you're telling them where to sit and you're showing them the courtesies and the honors of the, what the, guest should, the host should be doing, that takes courage. And I want to suggest to you that those who love God will develop courage. Let's look at two or three passages here. Starting with 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 9. Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy seems to be a little bit timid and a little bit shy. And Paul writes to him saying this, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. In other words, if I might paraphrase, God didn't call you to shrink back in timidity and fear that I'm a little afraid to press forward. God wants you to be courageous. He's given us the spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. Timothy, don't be shy. Don't be timid. Be courageous. You're a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Those who love God develop courage because they have determination. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do anything God expects of me. God tells me to do this. I'm going to have the courage. I'm going to do it anyway. Everybody else may be against me. It may be in a setting where I am in disdain, but I'm going to do what God wants me to do. They have determination. And they're not ashamed. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I don't want to tie that with 2 Timothy chapter 1 where we just were. The whole point of the chapter, I don't give a single verse or a section of verses, because the whole chapter is devoted, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, Paul, or of the gospel. Don't be ashamed. You are to be one who is, who is pressing forward. Look now at verse 15. He said, uh, at verse 15, 
He said, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a workman who has no need to be ashamed. In other words, be the kind of worker, Timothy. You press forward so that when you look back, you have no shame at all in the things you did or what you failed to do or what you, you're going to do or not do. You don't need to be ashamed. You need to be rightly handling the word of God. What have we seen from Luke 7, 36 to 50? Jesus is one character. There was a Pharisee who was another. And there was a sinner. There's a woman who's considered an outcast. We see a lesson about recognizing one's need. The relation between real need and love. How Jesus was treated. The respectable sinner. The worst of sinners can be forgiven in the courage of those who love God. And so we've looked at four lessons from Luke chapter 7. The first, the man who made Jesus marvel. The second section, God has visited his people. Then Jesus talks about John. And then finally, the last section of the chapter, Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinner. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?